Hello and welcome to Not If I Reboot You First, the podcast that takes our favorite properties and reboots them before Hollywood has the chance to. It's a little bit like brainstorming fanfiction. I'm Lindsay and I use she, her pronouns. I'm Tanner, they, them. <laughs> uh, we're, we're back from te- technical difficulties. What are we talking about this week? Uh, We're going to talk about the 2020 remake of Rebecca and how we could totally do it better. Nice. I forgot. Not only did I forget they made a 2020 remake of Rebecca, but I forgot about you telling me they made a 2020 remake of Rebecca after the last episode when you told me that you were going to fix the 2020 remake of Rebecca. Yeah, well, a lot of stuff happened, okay? <laughs> my <laughs> my laptop went into a reboot death spiral, and then I had a depression spiral. My oh, yeah, and I've, now, now it's all coming back to me. Fucking Army Hammer's there. Yeah. The hot bird from Maleficent. <laughs> Sorry, Sam Riley, but you'll always be the hot bird from Maleficent. <laughs> Forever typecasted. <laughs> As a hot bird? I guess. Uh, yeah, Kristen Scott Thomas is in it. Keely Haas is in it. Lily James was not properly cast in it. Yeah, this is a this is a mess. Uh <laughs> yeah, Lily James isn't like the flighty mousy girl that wifey is supposed to be. Yeah. Anyway, before we get ahead of ourselves, let's... I need to explain Rebecca. So, Rebecca is a romantic thriller. It's kind of like the precursor to those, like, mid-century gothic novels. Like, you'll sometimes see them at, like, a used bookstore or at Valley Village, where it's, like, the woman who's in, like, the negligee, and she has the fantastic hair, and she's running away from the mansion. (laughs) That is the genre. (laughs) yeah anyway uh rebecca the novel was written in 1938 by english author daphne maurier who was at the time a really popular author and um like her other works include jamaica inn and the birds and like her three big name books were all adapted by alfred hitchcock he seemed to have been a real big fan of hers so this is actually a fairly popular book, and it's about a young, unnamed woman who very impetuously marries a wealthy older widow uh, before discovering that both he and his household are haunted by the memory of his late wife, the title character, Rebecca. Uh, not a real ghost. I know we gotta clarify because it's yeah. gothic romance. Not a real ghost. Nor is she in a uh, Bertha Rochester situation of being locked in the attic. <laughs> yeah, there's... <laughs> Unless. <laughs> it's pretty clear that Daphne du Maurier did pull some Jane Eyre from her <laughs> into this. Yeah. So, anyway, the most famous adaptation was Alfred Hitchcock's 1940 adaptation. And it's sort of like a big deal for Alfred Hitchcock's career because it was his first American film. Okay. It was done under contract from producer David L. Selznick. So, back in 1940, this is a time when producers were actually the biggest like person in charge of making a film happen and you were more likely to see the producer like build above the director and sometimes the directors were just treated as like with the same level of care as like the costume designer like important for the film to function but they could be replaced but you see at the time david o selznick also working on gone with the wind (laughs) which was production nightmare because it was a huge huge movie and Selznick was very burnt out so he was barely involved in making Rebecca uh Hitchcock could do a lot of what he wanted wanted to do except for the censorship censorship stuff because this is during the Hays Code so mm-hmm. the thing about Rebecca amongst many other things, is that there's a character called Mrs. Danvers, who's the head housekeeper of the estate that the older widow, uh, Maxine de Winter, owns. It's called Mandalay. And Mrs. Danvers is a very... She's a more coded lesbian in the 40s, in the 1940 film. In the book, it's... I think de Maurier was trying to go for a more maternal relationship between her and Rebecca, but it comes off as being very lesbian. Yeah. Yeah, though very one-sided, I should say. If, like, her account of Rebecca loving nobody is is true, then, yeah. yeah. It, 
it might be a lot of projection. So, like, the I've seen the 1941. It's good. There was also, like, two miniseries um, of note, I should say. Uh, the first was in 1970, was in 1979. That was adapted by the BBC. It was directed by David Langton and starred Jeremy Brett, uh, who would later go on to become, like, the best Sherlock Holmes. And Joanna David as the second Mrs. De Winter, and Anna Massey as Mrs. De Winter, who <laughs> turns Anna Massey and Jeremy Brett used to be an item. Oh, that that's an interesting dimension. And then there's the 1997 uh, Carlton Television drama series, which starred Amelia Fox, who was Joanna David's daughter, who played uh, the second Mrs. De Winter, Charles Dance as Mr. De Winter. And Dame Diana Rigg as Mrs. Danvers. Nice. Yeah. Like, that's a pretty good cast, like, to have Charles Dance and Diana Rigg in the same thing. Oh, and I shouldn't short short shrift the 1940s film. It had Laurence Olivier as Maxine de Winter and Joan Fontaine as Mrs. de Winter and Dame Judith Anderson as Mrs. Danvers, who lost out on an Oscar award for best supporting actress to the actress who played Ma Jode in The Grapes of Wrath. So, yeah. Like, the thing about the 1940 film is that it got a, a nominated for, like, 11, 11 nominations, and this was, like, Hitchcock's first uh, best director nomination. Okay. And I think it only... What? I think it only got, like, one or two. It won... Outstanding production for David O. Selznick and Best Cinematography Black and White for George Barnes. Hmm. Also, another connection to Gone with the Wind. Laurence Olivier was at the time married to Vivian Lee, and he was rather angry about the situation because he wanted his wife, Lee, to play the role of Mrs. of the of the second Mrs. De Winter. I'll address that later. Um and Joan Fontaine, who played the second Mrs. De Winter, was the sister of Olivia de Havilland, who was playing uh, Melanie Hamilton on Gone with the Wind. <laughs> They're tied together. Hmm. Anyway, anyway. Oh, yeah, there's a, like, theatrical production in an opera. I totally forget. You know what? The big thing about, like, the musical version is that there was an attempt to adapt, to adapt it to Broadway. That seems to have been, like, a money laundering scheme. Yeah, Okay. I feel like, because this isn't something you pick to do a musical out of. This one, this is not something I'd be going, hey, Lindsay, let's make a musical out of it. This is, that was a weird pick for a musical. Yeah, it's weird, but there's a German production of it that's apparently fairly good. And it was produced okay, by Okay, I'll, I'll let the Germans have it. That makes <laughs> sense for the Germans. <laughs> it was produced by the same production company that did a musical version of, uh, there's a very famous film uh, starring Romy Schneider of uh, The Life of Empress Elizabeth of Austria. Uh, anyway, different thing, different time. The plot itself is fairly straightforward. It's a lot like Jane Eyre. So you have a naive young woman who is never given a name. The only clue to her name is that it. Uh, a lot of people misspell it. So it's either like a regular name that is often misspelled or it's just a weird name. Um, she is working as a companion as a paid companion to a wealthy older american woman and she's currently on holiday in monte carlo she's staying at this hotel and she meets a wealthy a very wealthy englishman by the name of maxim de winter who's a 42 year old widower and they only know each other for about two weeks and he's like marry me and then she gets whisked off to his estate in mandalay so Poor girl. Marry me right now. Don't question it. It's fine. <laughs> hey, this is fine. Yeah, this is fine. Don't think about anything at all. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, when they get to Manderley, um, the main character encounters Mrs. Danvers, who's the creepy housekeeper, who is very profoundly devoted to the first Mrs. De Winter, Rebecca who died in a sailing accident about a year before Maxim and the second Mrs. De Winter met. Um, and Mrs. Danvers sets out to make Mrs. De Winter's life a living hell. Yeah. And she just, like, runs roughshod over everything, and she's like, well, that's not what 
what the first Mrs. De Winter would do, the basically just constantly reminding her of like the the past Mrs. De Winter. It doesn't help that Maxim is very emotionally constipated (laughs) (laughs) and is kind of like always not there. So Rebecca has to do a lot of stuff on her own. Um, Maxim does have a sister by the name of Beatrice who tries to help out as best she can, but it's pretty clear like Mrs. De Winter is not part of this like very aristocratic world. She is. She doesn't know what to do. Yeah. She's very lost. Mrs. De Winter becomes very concerned that Maxim is regretting his decision of marrying her, and that's why he's not there. And she's trying to make a good impression on the locals, and they keep talking about like all the parties that Maxim and Rebecca used to throw. And she's and she hears about like the big uh, costume party that they used to have, and it was because it's like the thing in Cornwall. So she's like. Hey, how about we do that? And she manages to convince Maxim that this would be a good idea to show, like, she's stepping up to the role of being Mistress of Manly and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Mrs. DeWinter is, like, trying to figure out, like, what her costume is going to be. And Mrs. Danvers is like, well, look at this uh, painting of one of Maxim's ancestors, Lady Caroline. And look at this dress. It's very, it's very lovely. And it would totally suit you and all that sort of stuff. So that's what Rebecca gets she doesn't tell maxim and then when the costume ball like just before it starts to happen uh she reveals this gorgeous costume with the hat and wig and all this sort of stuff and (laughs) it turns out that was the last costume rebecca wore before she died great job (laughs) yeah so nobody reacts well to it maxim fucking blows up and orders her to change and Mrs. De Winter almost jumps out a fucking window, like with Mrs. Danvers basically goading her on, like, fucking do it, bitch, do it, do it. <laughs> but luckily, a ship runs aground because <laughs> they're near the coast. <laughs> so now everybody is like, what the fuck just happened? Oh my god, we gotta go and help this, help this out. And during all the chaos and, like, getting people off of the ship and, you know, handling this little disaster, um... One of the divers discovers a boat that's a lot that that's basically Rebecca's boat, the one that she supposedly drowned in. And we were doing a little investigation and we found a skeleton in there. Hey, Maxim, uh, thought that you uh, that you went to the corner and I identified a body. Said that was uh, that was Rebecca. <laughs> so uh, then it's revealed that yeah the body switch the body in the boat is probably rebecca or at least some people are starting to think that maxim eventually confesses that yes i did kill rebecca now this is one of the things that did get changed in the 1940 film uh, yeah because yeah because hayes code basically said you can't have ambiguous morals you can't have if your heroes kill someone they're not they can't be the heroes Mm mm-hmm or your heroes have to kill someone for a good reason. Yeah. And you give it two thoughts regarding Maxim, and it's like, even if Rebecca was a, was the bitch you're saying, did she really deserve to die? You know, there's other ways of dealing with this. Yes. Anyway, one of the big things about Rebecca is that everybody keeps saying that Rebecca was this amazing, wonderful person. Everybody loved her. And then Maxim reveals that, no, she was actually a bitch behind closed doors. Like, absolutely awful person like this was written in 1938 so there was no language at the time to really describe emotional abuse which is what's implied but it's basically said this was implied to be emotional abuse um so the big blow up that finally happens between maxim and rebecca is that she tells maxim that she is pregnant with another man's child which she would raise until under the pretense that this was Maxim's kid and he would be powerless to stop her. Again, this is written back in the 1930s. There was no DNA test at the time that could prove that Maxim was not the father. <laughs> there was no Maury at the time. Or, or was it uh, Jerry Spring? Jerry. God. 
who was the one who did like the paternity test on TV? I think they both did it. Yeah, they both did it. They were basically in the same business. Yeah. So that was the whole whole thing. Anyway, Maxim in a rage shoots and kills her. And then he disposes of the body by placing her in the boat and sinking it at sea. And <laughs> new Mrs. DeWinter is fucking glad. Maxim tells her that, like, I've always loved you. I never loved Rebecca. I'm sorry for being cold and distant. You've got to cover for me, though, baby. Yeah. Because <laughs> now there's an inquest that because Maxim now has to be like, well, she was uh, suicidal. But, like, you have to do an inquest to establish what the cause of death was because now we have a new body here. Who the fuck is this body? She was so hysterical. So... There's a cousin character who's been hanging around um, Rebecca's first cousin and her lover, Jack Favell. These are British aristocrats. Mm -hmm. Just go with it. Um, He attempts to blackmail Maxim and claims to have proof that she could not have intended suicide based on a note that she had sent him the night before she died. But then it's revealed that she had that Rebecca had an appointment with the doctor in London shortly before her death, presumably to confirm her pregnancy. And the thing about the entry in, like, her journal or agenda, whatever it was called at the time, is that the X that was written beside it, to beside this appointment to mark off that it was done, like, she almost tore the page with how hard she pressed into that, into that paper. So, that's interesting. Um, so, the crew goes to London. And talks to this doctor to find out, okay, what was she here for? And the doctor says that Rebecca wasn't pregnant. She had cancer and would have died within a few months. Furthermore, due to the malformation of her uterus, she could never have been pregnant. So Maxim assumes that Rebecca, knowing that she would die, manipulated him into killing her quickly. To avoid, like, a very, very painful death. Uh, Mrs. Danvers had said after the inquiry that Rebecca feared nothing except dying a a lingering death. And yeah, like today, cancer is a fucking rough thing to go through, but back in the 1930s, um, there was really nothing that could be done. Yeah. Anyway, this leads to Max feeling a great sense of relief, and Mrs. the new Mrs. DeWinter is like, oh my god, we can get on with our lives. She's you know, this is kind of like a suicide by cop situation. Everything's going to be okay. And then as they're returning to Manderley, um, it's in flames. Yep. <laughs> Mrs. Danvers kind of set the whole thing on fire. Yeah. It's interesting because in, in the Wikipedia summary, it doesn't say that Mrs. Danvers lit the thing on fire. It, it just says that the book ends with them, like, driving as soon as they can to reach Manderley again. And they're just on fire. Yeah. Yeah. It ends a lot more ambiguously. Like, some people think think that Mrs. Danvers had the place on fire. Um, but yeah, it, it ends with just them seeing Mandalay on fire and it's implied to be like Rebecca's like final revenge. Because the book starts with um, Mrs. DeWinters and Max and living basically in exile in Switzerland. Um, also, again, this book was written in 1938. So like <laughs> World War II was on the horizon and some people could see it. I think even... Daphne de Maurier might be able to have seen it a bit better than others because her husband was a general in the British Army at the time um, and one of the founders of the Parachute re- Regiment um, who got depicted in the in A Bridge Too Far. Yeah, this is another wild intersection of, of things that I am interested in. Anyway, in the 1940 film, because again, the Hayes Code kind of state basically stated that there, again, there couldn't be any moral ambiguity about these stories. So, because Mrs. Danvers was also heavily queer-coded by Alfred Hitchcock, and somebody needed to be punished, because, like, in, in the 1940 movie, what happens between Maxim and Rebecca is that Maxim and Rebecca get into a fight, and... She tries to get away, and she trips, falls, hits her head, and dies. So it's a complete accident instead of the implied suicide by Maxim. But still, somebody needed to be punished for all of this. 
So Alfred Hitchcock decided, you know what? Mrs. De Winter or Mrs. Danvers is the most likely candidate to burn this whole fucking place down to the ground and she's going down with it. Yeah. Which actually, yeah, that's a good that's a good reading on what would probably happen to Danvers. Because she is devastated by the various revelations that come from the inquest and the visiting of the doctor with the doctor. So yeah, <laughs> that's that's Rebecca. Yep. Now, here's the thing about the 2020 adaptation. It was bad. Yeah. <laughs> You've implied. <laughs> I, I, I keep saying that it was bad, but, like, it was met with, like, Rotten Tomatoes, not the best place to get to, like, gauge how good or bad a film is, but it has a 39% of uh, 231 critics' reviews that are positive, and it has an average rating of 5.4 out of 10. Uh-oh. Yeah, so it's, that's not good. And, like, it's tainted by the army hammer of the situation. And also, like, Ben Wheatley, like, his other credits include Kill List and A Field in England. And, like, he's a good director. He's a really good horror director, but he was not a good fit for Rebecca. So, uh, Peter De DeBruge from Variety wrote, for about three quarters of the running time, Rebecca does a respectable job of navigating between respect for the source source and establishing its own identity. And then at precisely the moment where it stands to make a new inline line improvements, this Rolls Royce of an adaptation veers off the road. Ben Wheatley's Rebecca remake is a ravishing to behold, but it never quite gets to the heart of the classic source material or truly justifies its own existence. <laughs> Ben Wheatley has no business making a gothic romantic horror movie if he is not interested in gothic romantic horror, and on the evidence of the film, he is not. Yeah, that, that's from Casas Grady for Vox. She continue, She concludes, Wheatley's Rebecca is a horror film that is, result, that is resultly sure there is nothing horrifying going on here at all, actually. <laughs> it's perfectly fine. Don't yeah. worry about it. Rebecca 2020 is here to marry you after two weeks. Don't question anything. You're lovely. Yeah. So, like, basically the big twist that they do is, like, Rebecca presumably had advanced uterine cancer and would have died within a few months. And uh, the investigators conclude Rebecca committed suicide by scuttling the boat, while Mr. DeWinter privately concludes that she wanted Max to kill her. I think... Yeah, they went with the original book ending of, or like the original book circumstances, and Mrs. Danvers. Oh yeah, the the house still goes up in flames. Miss and Mrs. De Danvers fled. Mrs. De Winter finds her at the cliffs. Uh, she pleads with her not to jump, but the older woman curses the De Winters to never know happiness and jumps into the sea and drowns. <laughs> Wait, and that was the twist? Yeah, that's what that's what they decided to do. Well, that that's just that's not even a twist. That's just her dying differently. Yeah, dying differently. Like, come on, come on, Ben, come on. Yeah, most people said it was rather bland. It was like like there was a lot more sex in it between Maxim and Mrs. De Winters, but also like weirdly unhorny. <laughs> Well, yeah, because Army Hammer didn't get to eat anything. <laughs> Normally, we don't kink shame. We're allowed to kink shame this one. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, what do we, what do we do about the situation? Because, like, there, Rebecca is a good, is a good book to adapt, and I think that there is a hunger out there for gothic romance now. Yeah, and I would say the 1940 movie did the best it could within the restrictions of the Hayes Code. Like, it's one of the very, very few uh, examples of the Hayes Code breeding creativity. Yeah, like, the other one... Not even that creativity, just breeding the obvious. Like, I feel like even people who read the book would have said, oh, I bet it was Mrs. Danvers who set the house ablaze. Yeah, like, it's one of those few times where, like, it's not so much an improvement, but it's definitely, like, Something a bit better than what the original source material. A refinement. Like, the other one I'm thinking about is Kiss Me Deadly, which is based off of a book by Mike Spillane. And that book, it's, like, terrible pulp fiction. 
just offensive all the <laughs> way around. But one of the things that the filmmakers had to do because of the Hays Code was like the main MacGuffin in that in that book was a block of heroin. This is like the 1950s. You can't show that. <laughs> so what they did was they went, well, what if it's like a box and like when you open it up, it glows and it makes weird noises that are that will one day inspire like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg when they're making the Ark of the Covenant for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, all we know that is in the box is that it is bad. When Mike Hammer opens it up the first time, he gets like a weird burn mark on his wrist. And the next time it gets opened up, the main villainess goes up like a fucking Roman candle. Dang, Ark of the Covenant shit. <laughs> yeah, like... They put Gwyneth Paltrow's head in there. <laughs> yeah, you could say it influenced Seven, and it also influenced Pulp Fiction. <laughs> so... Um, hey, so before we get too deep in the weeds, I really need to ask you one question. Yes? I think Mrs. Danvers should be played by Reba McIntyre. <laughs> Showed you that one music video? Yes, it's just because you showed me the video for Does He Love You. Folks, go watch the video for Does He Love You. And don't get distracted by her fabulous hat. <laughs> the hat with the veil. Don't don't be distracted by Reba McIntyre's Lawrence of Arabia cosplay, which is not relevant to why I'm bringing it up, but it is a fun bonus. <laughs> it is like... <laughs> <laughs> that music video is dynasty levels of drama. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, we'll get to what my thought on um, casting for Mrs. Danvers could be. Um, first problem is the casting. Look, anybody is better than Army Hammer <laughs> to play Max and Winter, but I have a couple ideas. Um, yes. But first, let's talk about Mrs. DeWinter. Uh, the second Mrs. DeWinter. So, in the past, she's been played by Joan Fontaine, Joanna David, and Amelia Fox. And in the 2020 version, she was cast by cast with Lily James. Now, one of the problems with the 2020 version is that nobody in the costuming department was willing to make Lily James look mousy and dowdy and, like, Barely in her early 20s. It should be stated that Lily James, as of uh, 2023, is 34 years old. Now, she looks like she could play a 25-year-old, but, like... But not a mousy 25-year-old. She looks like she plays one who's, like, got her shit together. Yeah. The first Mrs. DeWinter. She'd be yeah. playing Rebecca. Yeah, she should be playing Rebecca. Like, she's just too beautiful to play the second Mrs. DeWinter. So... I was casting around for actresses who are in, like, I was going no more than 25. Hey, girl, I saw you in the casting agency, and you seem really mid. Do you want to be in my movie? <laughs> like, they actually have to have skill here, but, like... Yeah, it's just, I've, I've mentioned this to you before, how it's kind of harsh when you're casting for a role where it's, like, it's very important that the person is below average when it comes to, like, so socially accepted beauty standards especially female actors like what a baby girl you look adequate yeah like the standard for hollywood is drop dead gorgeous for the rest of us yeah hollywood only exists for a reason but anyway i was looking at bridgerton and i found ruby stokes now she's not on bridgerton anymore she was on the short-lived uh lockwood and company another netflix venture that got canceled because support the writer's strike <laughs> yeah support the writer's strike anyway she is 22 years old and like she's pretty especially when she's made up but i am like she's 22 and she could totally play someone who's kind of on the mousier side yeah and like another part of this is just putting her in the right clothes exactly that's the thing is that it's all gonna come down to wardrobe and acting and she has to act like she's a baby deer mm -hmm. lost in the woods just doesn't know what to do. That that's basically the second Mrs. DeWinter right there. She must eventually grow a spine, of course, but like Hey little mama, you've got the eyes of a baby lamb and the naivete to match. Yes. 
Your unfamiliarity with this new social class you've entered is distressing. <laughs> the the panic is reasonable to understand. Like, there's a moment in the book where Rebecca, she's about to, like, make her entrance for the uh, costume party, and she realizes that the guests are coming, and uh, Maxim is nowhere to be seen, and she knows none of these people, and she's like, what if I just, like, jumped out this window and hung guard? I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like, the big thing about the second Mrs. De Winter is she is super relatable. Yeah. Um, in doing research into, like, the creation of the book, Rebecca, uh, this was probably something that Daphne du Maurier felt herself. Like, Daphne du Maurier did come from a privileged background. Like, her family wasn't, like, ever wanting for money. Um, but she came from a very bohemian background. They were all actors. She had gone famous off of her, like, I think she was, like, two books into her her career. She was well-known, like, getting to the point where, like, her name is at the top of top of the cover <laughs> and is bigger than the than the actual title. But anyway, she marries this guy called Frederick Browning, uh, Lieutenant General Sir Frederick Arthur Montague Boy Browning. He was a decade older than her. He, he became famous for basically establishing the parachute regiment of the British Armed Forces. Uh, he was involved in Operation Torch, the Allied invasion of North Africa. Uh, he was involved in Market Garden, involved in South in the Southeast Asia Command. He was... In January 1948, Browning became the Comptroller and Treasurer of Her Royal Highness uh, Princess Elizabeth and was... Yeah, it, an appointment that was made on the recommendation of Lord Mountbatten, the uncle to the future Duke of Edinburgh. <laughs> So, yeah, he was part of the royal court. And Daphne was like, <laughs> I don't like this at all. I'm going to appear at Buckingham Palace like maybe once a year. And otherwise I'm staying in Cornwall and writing my books. Which, you know what? Fair. So, like, one of the things about their marriage was that Browning had been engaged to another woman. Who was, like, more of his class. Older than Daphne du Maurier. More like better educated, a lot more sophisticated, etc., etc., and nauseam. She's basically Rebecca. So you can definitely say that uh, De Maurier was putting a shit ton of herself into the second Mrs. De Winter and was working out some shit. Also, she might have been a closeted bisexual woman, probably an ace. Oh, cool. Or possibly an ace lesbian. Um, she got really close with the wife of her American publisher. This woman was named Ellen Doubleday. And she might have had a bit of a lesbian crisis. There was also, like, another relationship she had with um, an actress, Gertrude Lawrence, who knew her dad from back in the day. And, again, very close, very sapphic. She had a bit of a crisis about, about this. And, like, also, like, there's a lot of indication that, like, she was a tomboy growing up. And she, like, had a male persona. And at times she wished to be a boy. So it's like, huh. Damn. A lot of gender stuff going on here, Daphne. Yeah. Yeah, kind of working through some shit in your books, are you? <laughs> All of this to say, I think Ruby Stokes would be a good miss, good second Mrs. De Winter. And, like, there's a lot more to Daphne De Maurier than meets the eye. So anyway, Max and De Winter. He's old he kind of runs hot and cold in all of his relationships. Very troubled. Stayed to be about like 42 in the books. Uh, he was played very famously by Lawrence Olivier, Jeremy Brett, and Charles Nance. So my idea for like possible casting would be like Killian Murphy or James McAvoy. Yes. I like both of those. Yeah. Cause they, they can, they can do the three main emotions we need from Maxim, which would be technically loving very dismissive, and hey, calm down, okay? I just did a murder. <laughs> <laughs> I think Killian Murphy, thinking between the two of them, is probably the best suited for it. He's just, like, more sophisticated Tommy Shelby. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, okay, Killian Murphy. Now, Mrs. Danvers. She's the creepy housekeeper and former personal maid of Rebecca, who is obsessed with her late, late mistress. Maybe, maybe a lesbian. Maybe the closest to a mother Rebecca ever had. Um, she was played by Judith Anderson back in the 1940 film, Anna Massey, and Diana Rake. Yeah, those, those are all great picks. 
<laughs> yeah. So traditionally, she's depicted as being older than both Rebecca and Maxim. Like, I would pin her more in her 50s. But then again, like, Hollywood is weird about casting older actresses. Yeah. And, like, in the 2020 adaptation, they had Kristen Scott Thomas play her. And she is presently 63. And, okay, so there's, like, the obvious lesbian undertones with Mrs. Dan, between Mrs. Danvers and, like, how she feels about Rebecca because Rebecca is never seen on screen and we never actually like hear her talk about stuff and you know voice anything we're only getting secondhand information we don't actually know what Rebecca's feelings towards Danvers were if anything Mm -hmm. but there's because of certain things that are dropped and said like it is implied by Mrs. Danvers that she was the closest thing that Rebecca had to a mother growing up. That she knew Rebecca since she was a child. Which, like, with the lesbian aspect, kind of makes it creepy. Yeah, I yeah, that was one dance. Like, the Haze Code was... They were probably able to get away with a little extra stuff during the Haze Code because look at this scary lesbian! Yeah. And I don't know, like, who who can say what kind of subtext that Daphne Deboria herself was putting into the work? But yeah. I think Hitchcock saw that and probably exploited it a little bit, because he knew he could get away with it. Yeah. Yeah, because he could get away with it, and, like, when you look at his oeuvre, he likes to play around with homosexuality in various ways. Like, he also did Strangers on a Train and Rope, which have very heavily queer subtexts. Lindsay, I need to tell you that for for a hot second, I got rope mixed up with bound. <laughs> God damn it! God damn it, Tanner! <laughs> it it does have it does have some heavy queer subtext and some queer text too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, rope basically has like a gay couple right on screen. They just don't yeah. say gay. Well, plus the gay couple are villainous, so again, it's something you can get away with. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the biggest changes that Hitchcock made for Rope was that um, their mentor character, who was played by Jimmy Stewart in the film, was also implied to have been a little queer himself, and might have had a relationship with one of the with one of the guys when he was a teenager. But then you cast Jimmy Stewart, who, as one person described him, um, one of the most sexless men in Hollywood, and. <laughs> <laughs> You look at Jimmy Stewart and do you think this guy fucks? <laughs> I believe he could have fucked. <laughs> I guess it's the voice. <laughs> the, yeah, I, I don't know what he sounds like. I'm looking at this man. I feel like... Actually, you know what? Yeah, it looks... He looks a little bit... What he looks like is that he looks like he fucked once <laughs> in his college days just to see what the fuss was about. Yeah. <laughs> It was very missionary. <laughs> he he came, and then he was like, hmm, fascinating. Anyways. Uh, yeah, anyway. Basically, to get this back to Mrs. Danvers, I'm kind of personally uncomfortable with the implication that um, she's had untoward feelings towards Rebecca since Rebecca was like 10. So I'm like, okay, if we go traditional route, Jillian Anderson would be a really great Mrs. Danvers. Um, Like, hell, one of her best villainous roles was on the crown when she played fucking Margaret Thatcher. But what if we casted Younger? I, so here's here's my hot Danvers take. Um, That's not Rue McIntyre. (laughs) I would prefer to keep the sapphic subtext and so remove the the mother, the the mother figure part of it. Yeah, the implied incest. Even though they're not related. Yeah. Well, not 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 implied, but like the emotional. Yeah. Incest. But yeah. I do think it is important to for Mrs. Danvers and Miss and Rebecca to have something going on. Like, absolutely, we need to have there there to be something coming from Mrs. Danvers that does this. And Big Gun later saying she had weird feelings for Rebecca, and they're not fucked up because they're gay. It's fucked up because Danvers is not a good person either. Yeah. Danvers is not a good Mrs. person. Mrs. Danvers and Rebecca, to borrow a line from Do Revenge, are fucked up soulmates. 
Yes. And depending on how we approach Rebecca herself, like, Rebecca could also be completely aware of Danvers' feelings towards her and was playing her like a fiddle to make sure that she could get away with whatever she wanted to get away with. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, we can easily get rid of the motherhood and I, we could replace it with something where it's like Danvers saw herself as a mentor to Rebecca when she met her, when Rebecca first married Maxim. Yeah. Because we could even, I don't know if it's in the book or not, but we could have something going on where like Rebecca herself was new to this world, but she acclimated very quickly because she's the devil. Yeah. Part of who helped her was, of course, Mrs. Danvers. Who, yes, like, that's what it is. It's it's um. Oh shit! What's that? What's that? Offspring song? <laughs> dance, fucker, dance. Um, you're gonna go far, kid. Yeah. Mrs. Danvers taught Rebecca how to become the master manipulator that she is, and Rebecca turned it on Mrs. Danvers. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so that's why. So here, so my my ideas for Mrs. Danvers. I think because of, because of the the all of it going on with her, yeah. I think it'd be really interesting to cast a character who in to cast an actress who in her youth played an ingenue, and now here she is completely fucking up the mind of the new ingenue. Yes. So my picks are either Robin Wright or Jennifer Connelly. Oh, oh. I'm leaning towards Robin Wright just yeah. because Jennifer Connelly looks like she's still 30. Robin White was like, you know what? I'm going to age. But she also looks fucking hot. I mean, they both look hot. But I, Jen- I know, I know. It- <laughs> Jennifer Connelly, look, she looks great, but she also looks like she sleeps in the oxygen deprivation <laughs> tank. Robin Wright is like, I've actually had a life, you know? <laughs> I've seen the sun recently. But yeah, I like robin right a lot also like she killed it in her short amount of time that she was in wonder woman yeah so robin right as mrs danvers and okay now we get to the question of rebecca what the fuck are we doing with rebecca is she going to be a ghost the entire time or does she have more of a present like do we get flashbacks or does she just like remain in the background and everything is implied i think you know what would be interesting? If we did a little bit of a black swan situation where it's like uh, two misses to De Winter is trying to emulate Rebecca and we do kind of see like it switch between Rebecca doing the stuff that she did in normal life and Mrs. De Winter trying to emulate that. Yeah. And like part of it could be the second Mrs. De Winter's own fantasies about what Rebecca used to do. Yeah. And we that way we can even see, like, her opinion of her turn from, like, oh, I can't wait to be this beautiful, wonderful woman, to, like, this woman is haunting my marriage to Maxim, and if only I can surpass her, if only I can become a weapon to surpass Rebecca de Winter, then Maxim will finally love me. Like, it's both that, but also, like, okay, so I read this one Tumblr post where it's, like, when a guy, like, bitches about his ex so much that you kind of fall in love with her because you kind of find her a bit of a badass like i think that might oh. be happening too where mm-hmm. yeah like the second mrs de winter is like she's in this rivalry with the ghost of Mrs. of of rebecca but she's also like but she sounds hot yeah Re- rebecca rebecca one is uh diana agron Ooh, the age fits and she's been involved in it's horror adjacent stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. Like I like the idea that like we get like the weird black swan. We don't know if this is like a flashback, a dream, a straight up haunting. Yeah. But then there's also okay. Who's lying in this? Whose story do we believe? Do we believe anybody's story, or is it kind of like, well? little bit of colonnade. I think it needs to be very ambiguous. Yeah. I yeah. think we need maybe to make it more ambiguous. I think we need to imply that the doctor is lying and that maybe the cancer itself is a fraud. Yeah. Yeah, like it could have been a legit pregnancy and he just came up with a cancer diagnosis because he's like, oh, this is gonna get messy for me. Or he was paid off. Or he was paid off by Maxim or someone else. Yeah, Mrs. Danvers could have. 
Well, there's also another character. Even the second Mrs. De Winter. Yeah. Ooh, the second Mrs. De Winter pays off the doctor. And we we only get hints of this. But it's like, if you want to go that route that that's what happened, then you then the audience leaves thinking, now the second Mrs. De Winter is on the road to become just like Rebecca, a manipulator. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, the other person I was thinking who could do this, um, there's a character called Frank Crawley, and he's, like, the estate manager. And he's kind of presented as being, you know, a good guy who's, like, trying to do his best by everybody and is super nice to the second Mrs. De Winter and is implied to have had a relationship with Rebecca that did get sexual and that he still has feelings for her. And I'm like, huh, you're a character who could be expanded upon. Everyone in this story either hates Rebecca or is down bad for her, and sometimes both. Yeah. Because, <laughs> like, there's him, there's Jack Flavel. Now, I don't think Jack's smart enough to figure out that, to figure out the whole situation with the doctor and, like, pay him off to say that it was cancer. I think Frank's smart enough to do that. But I also like the idea of Rebecca, like, going villain mode. And being like, I am down bad for Maxim. I'm going to save his ass. And I'm just yeah. going to go ahead. You, you, you did just call her Rebecca by accident. Because I'm pretty sure you mean second De Winter. Yeah. Mrs. De Winter. Mrs. De Winter is the De Winter that we're talking about right now. Yeah. Not Rebecca. See, but see, it's already, we're buying into it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I can see the second Mrs. De Winter, like, doing that or, like, Somehow, like, getting the doctor alone before, like, the rest of the crew show up and, like, or, like, he, like, comes in. Or we, okay, so the whole, like, there's a detour to London to talk to this doctor so that they can get Maxim acquitted. But what if the doctor gets called in and, like, we we just, like, arrange events a bit differently and we don't have to go to London so that, like... The second Mrs. DeWinter can, like, figure out that there, Rebecca got some sort of news that was very distressing that day she went to see this doctor. She goes to the doctor, asks him what happened before anybody else can talk to him, and he says that she was pregnant, and the second Mrs. DeWinter basically offers him a big wad of cash and is like, say it was cancer. Say that she, could, that she couldn't even have children because of the way her universe was formed. So that plausible deniability, it could have been a way to commit suicide and frame her husband for it. Yeah. Yeah. Because one of the things that's implied is that Rebecca always wanted to do everything on her terms. So like the whole fear of a lingering death is like nature deciding to be a bitch towards me and not giving me the exact death I want. Like I honestly think Rebecca would have been one of those live fast, die young types anyway. Yeah. I don't know. She was probably thinking more like, I'm going to go out in a fiery car wreck and cocaine. Yep. (laughs) With the press following me. But like going back further, like aside from the second Mrs. DeWinter's possible transformation into becoming this new Mrs. DeWinter, there could be like this version of Maxim is lying the entire time. He's the one like trying to control the narrative control the story about Rebecca and turn the second Mrs. DeWinter into an accessory for murder, but also turn the second Mrs. DeWinter into the sort of wife he's always, he always wanted. Maybe it's like, I want what I always wanted Rebecca to be instead of what she was. But there's also like, Rebecca is a bitch, emotionally abused, Maxim, Maybe this was a situation where it's implied in the novel that, okay, it's implied in the novel that Maxim's dad let Nan really kind of fall apart. And by marrying Rebecca, like, Rebecca brought money and brought ideas that revived Manderley from becoming just, like, a, a ruin, basically. And, like, the situation could be, like, she's emotionally and financially abusing Maxim, and he eventually snaps when she bullies him into it. Mm-hmm. But, like, again, Maxim is like, I need to turn my second wife into this ideal person who I can control. So, not a good guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. There's a, a bunch of different angles that we can take with that, but, like, I kind of like the idea of the second Mrs. DeWinter, like, losing, like, either losing herself 
to this ideal version of Rebecca. Or, like, Rebecca giving... Like, if we do more of a Rebecca was actually good, or maybe not good, but, like, she wants... Her, her desire for revenge against Maxine is a lot more legitimate. Um, She's enacting her revenge through the second Mrs. DeWinter and giving her back her name. Because the reason why we keep calling this character the second Mrs. DeWinter or Mrs. DeWinter is because she's never given a name. Yeah. So what what if we... What if we frame it as, like, Rebecca Rebecca was cruel, but that's because Maxim was a terrible husband, and so Mrs. Danvers taught her that, but then she ended up taking her cruelty out on everyone and not just Maxim. Yeah. Because I don't like the idea of, like, Rebecca being a, a totally justified person. I think it is much more interesting if it's a lot more gray, and she's like, well, just because Rebecca was terrible doesn't mean Maxim wasn't and vice versa. Yeah. Like, it's the, it's a tragic that she was driven to do this, and it's tragic that no matter what happens, we see that the second Mrs. DeWinter is also going to be driven towards this. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean necessarily that she was wrong to put Maxim through hell. Yeah. Like, it really comes down to how we finish the ending, and whether or not Maxim and the second Mrs. DeWinter are still together. And if we mention a name for the second Mrs. DeWinter. Because one of the framing devices for the book is that it starts with what's implied to be an interview or like a letter to someone right so going to this whole like name thing um it stated in the book that the second mrs de winter's name is odd and it's often misspelled and one of siobhan (laughs) well i i have a couple names okay okay i was looking up names that would have been popular kind of popular at the time or at least like not unheard of that you would give to a girl and would likely Mm -hmm. be misspelled so one of them is briny uh b-r-y-o-n-y and there's an alternate spelling with a y replacing the first i um briny is another name for a type of vine um audra which could be frequently misspelled as audrey a linnet which is a welsh name because around the time that the second Mrs. De Winter was born, Welsh names were really popular at the time. Now, Elenid is spelled L-U-N-E-D. So, I can see that being misspelled frequently. Lenore, spelled L-E-N-O-R-E. And it could be misspelled like the Spanish-Portuguese version, which is uh, L-E-O-N-O-R. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... Going off of particularly the German musical, um, they refer to the second Mrs. De Winter in the script with ich, I, and the book is written in first person. So, I did this, I did that, I said this. Mm-hmm. So, I looked up names that start with I, and I came up with Ianthe, Imogen, Inez, one spelled with an S, one spelled with a Z. Ioni and Isolde, because I think those are names that are unusual and could be easily misspelled. And I'm kind of I think Ioni would be the best one. Yeah. If you're if you're down for that. Yeah, I like Ioni. I I think Ioni's one of the best ones. Um and like we could withhold that name until the very end when she like writes out Ioni de Winter. Yeah. I Mrs. De Winter. Yeah. Um I guess the big question is whether or not Danver dies and what happens to Maxim and Ioni or Mrs. DeWinter, if you will. Because I kind of like the idea of, like, depending on how much Mrs. Danvers buys into, like, her idea of Rebecca being this, in a way, pure figure and, like, maybe that idea being shattered, like, she sets the house on fire and, like, basically goes out the way that she did in 1940, where she goes down with the house. Well, I mean, in the 1940s one, didn't, like, is she just standing in the house, or didn't you say she, like, trips and falls? Uh, she is standing in the house, and she looks up and the roof collapses on her. Okay, then yeah, we might as well do the same thing there. Yeah. If we want, uh, if we want Ioni to end up on her own in a good way at the end, we could either have um, Maxim 
go into the house for some reason and die there. Maybe he tries to save Danvers. Like, this is his one good act. Why would he do that, though? I think Maxim would let her die if he had the opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like, there's a dog. And I think the dog should live. The dog must live. I think... So I think what happens is Ioni goes, Oh no, Maxim, the dog! And he runs in, and then the roof collapses. And then Ioni looks over, and the dog was already outside, just chilling. (laughs) Yeah, Jasper the the Spaniel. Yes. Yeah, I think either that, or it's just that Maxim escapes being charged with uh, the murder of Rebecca. But somehow he ends up being framed for the house fire. Yeah. Insurance fraud. Yeah, maybe he's just too land poor. Or, yeah, land poor. I think that's the situation. You own a bunch of land, but it's not worth anything. Because, like, those houses are expensive to maintain. There's a reason why they they often get turned into museums or schools or they get turned into, like, film sets. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, like, we could get rid of Maxim in the fire or, like, he gets arrested for something. Or, like, I don't know, the inquest doesn't work out in his favor and he winds up arrested for Rebecca gets everything that she wants. Yeah. And maybe like the one good thing this all provides Ioni is her freedom. Yeah. But yeah. Congratulations Gothic heroine you 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 successfully escaped the house. <laughs> That's the big thing. Just got to get out of the house. And you use you use the manipulation you learned from the ghost of Rebecca for good. <laughs> Girl, you did it! You closed the portal! (laughs) You moved the headstones, but you didn't move the bodies! (laughs) Awesome. Uh, Yeah. Well, we've been- this is the longest episode we've recorded in a long fucking time. Yeah. So, we better, uh, cut real quick to an ad promo. I just hope it's as good as Rebecca's ad promos. London, 1883. The veil between the living and the dead has thinned. By the tide mediums commune with spirits under the watchful eye of the Royal Speaker Society, and 16-year-old Silas Bell would rather rip out his violet eyes than become an obedient speaker wife. According to Mother, he'll be married by the end of the year. It doesn't matter that he's needed a decade of tutors to hide his autism, that he practices surgery on slaughtered pigs, that he is a boy, not the girl the world insists on seeing. After a failed attempt to escape an arranged marriage, Silas is diagnosed with veil sickness, a mysterious disease sending violet-eyed women into madness, and shipped away to Braxton Sanitarium and Finishing School. The facility is cold, the instructors merciless, and the students either bloom into eligible wives or disappear. So, when the ghosts of missing students start begging Silas for help, he decides to reach into Braxton's inners and expose its rotten guts to the world, as long as the school doesn't break him first. The Spirit Bears Its Teeth is the next novel from New York Times bestselling author Andrew Joseph White. It is a book about misogyny, transphobia, and ableism from the perspective of an autistic transgender boy and has a thematic focus on the violent enforcement of gender roles and Victorian-era psychiatry as tools of oppression. You can pre-order it now or pick it up from your nearest bookstore on September 5th, 2023. Morse Vincent Omnia, Death Conquers All. All right, we're back. Lindsay, where can you be found on the internet? I can be found on Twitter at lindsaym476. Let's spell with an A, and you can get to all my other social media bullshits from there. Tanner, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at SparkyUpstart and Instagram at SparkyYoungUpstart. You can also find this very podcast on Twitter at N-I-I-R-Y-F-Pod. Those are the letters for Dad if I reboot you first, and I've monogrammed them on everything <laughs> all over the house, so don't fucking touch them. You can also email us at notifyrebootyoufirst at gmail.com where you can send us your comments, critiques, criticisms, and your idea for a costume that's going to shock your husband. That is also where you could send us a friendship promo, whether it's an audio clip or a proof for us to read. Either way, we'll put in a free ad for your podcast, your YouTube, or even your sapphic lesbian death spiral. Not If I Reboot You First is a member of the Corner Podcast Network, and you can talk more about this show or others on the network via our Corner Podcast Discord. As always, our cover art is by Alex Fierce, and her work can be found on ptchew.com, and our theme music is done by our friend Sean Clake, whose contact info is available upon request. This podcast is recorded on Treaty 4 territory, the traditional lands of the free, social, and Assiniboine, and homeland of the Métis. So, Tanner. So, Lindsay. What do you have for us next week? 
Uh, yeah, next week we actually have some people to come talk to us about the rats. Oh! Yeah, they're from the National Institute for Mental Health. Oh, okay, those rats, okay. Yeah, those rats. Uh, <laughs> but we'll learn their secrets next week. Their secrets? Squeakwits! We're gonna learn their secrets. But not if we reboot you first. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Bye! Bye! <laughs>